This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. My Twitter was burning up my email as well on the weekend because of the column I had in uh, the Sunday Province newspaper on the Union of BC Municipalities. Now, this is the major uh, municipal organization for the province that represents all the municipalities, the mayors, the councillors, and they do good work. They do a lot of, they have an annual convention where they get together and they, they study and talk about all the important things that local government does, whether it's transportation, uh, picking up the garbage on time, uh, fi- fixing the potholes, you know, all the stuff that your local government does. But they also every year uh, get wined and dined by the People's Republic of China with a, with a very fancy a hotel reception that's put on in a fancy hotel in downtown Vancouver. So once again this year, the reception is once again on. And this has been going on for years, like I said before. And every year, it's kind of brought up as an issue. Should uh, local municipalities be taking hospitality from China? And it's usually kind of a, a one-day wonder story every year. I've been digging into it a little deeper here because here's the interesting thing. It's not just a reception so it's not just drinks and some food, but it's also a sponsorship. So China pays money to the Union of BC Municipalities as a sponsor. And they're the only foreign government that does. And they get their name in the program as a result. And they get access to all these politicians at this reception. How much money? Well, I asked Arjun Singh that the other day. How much money are you guys taking from China? He didn't want to tell me. He said that we don't disclose that amount, which I thought was very weird. Why not? Why wouldn't you disclose it? Maybe they're kind of embarrassed about it. Uh, Then I was contacted later after he declined to tell me how much, and a UBCM official contacted me and said, okay, we'll tell you. It's not much money. They say it's $6,000. That's how much they get from the government of China this year, 6000 bucks plus the reception. All right? So every single year they get this money. Should they be taking any money at all? Who cares? Six grand is kind of peanuts, right? But should they take any money at all? Have a listen to this. Here's Vancouver City Councilor Pete Fry speaking about this this morning. Uh, I, you know, I think that's just sort of populist rhetoric, to be honest with you. I mean, Mayor West has businesses in the city of Port Coquitlam that that do a booming business with China. So, it's a bit, and this contributes to his, you know, tax base gives great, good-paying jobs for Canadians living in Port Coquitlam. I mean, I think strong convictions are, are important to have, and I, and I think, you know, the mayor of Port Coquitlam has strong convictions, and I appreciate them uh, in a general sense. I think this is a bit kind of pressing the populist, you know, Twitter button to garner a little bit more attention to this issue, where if it matters that much to the mayor of Port Coquitlam, perhaps he should be taking another closer look at some of his tax base and, 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 and businesses that are doing business with China, if that's really where he wants to go with it. Ooh, okay. This is Vancouver City Councilor Pete Fry there taking a crack at Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam. Brad West is the guy who's raising hell about this. He says that this this organization should not be taking any money from China. Uh, he's calling for the reception to be canceled. No more money from the Chinese government. He wants a boycott of this reception. He's going to be my guest here coming up at the bottom of the hour. But let's go to our hot question of the day, which is on this topic. The Union of BC Municipalities will once again accept sponsorship funds from the, Ch- the government of China when the annual gathering meets this year. In light of recent disputes with China, should the UBCM take money and hospitality 
from China. Would you say yes, this money is welcome, or would you say no, it is unethical? At CKNW on Twitter is where you can vote on that today. At CKNW on Twitter. We'll keep a running tally here on uh, the result on that. Phone me on the buzz line in this one today and tell me what you think. 604-331-BUZZ is the number. 604-331-2899. Let's talk about the Union of BC Municipalities now accepting uh, cash sponsorship from the People's Republic of China. That annual reception for delegates to the UBCM every year as well. Let's talk now with uh, Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam, who is calling for this event to be canceled. Mayor West, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, what's your, give me your take on this. Why do you want this uh, this reception to be canceled and for the UBCM not to take this cash? Well, I just think it's completely unethical and inappropriate. I mean, first off, mayors and city councillors are elected to represent their residents and work on local municipal issues. What, what business could they possibly have, uh, you know, sucking back free wine and appetizers with the government of China? Uh, it, it's not our role. Mayors and city councillors are not responsible for foreign relations. So that's, that's one piece of it. The other piece of it is this. It's only the government of China who this courtesy is extended to, who's allowed to host one of these receptions and have access to mayors and city councillors. The government of China has a well-documented campaign to expand their influence and grow their soft power, so much so that the former head of CSIS in this country said it is a concern that we need to be on watch for. You layer on top of that the fact that this is a country that is engaged in so many hostile actions that are against the interests of Canadians and against the interests of our country. They have two Canadian citizens rotting in a prison right now who they just yeah. as as a kind of uh backlash to canada following the rule of law just arbitrarily one day picked up two canadians and put them in jail they haven't had access to lawyers they haven't been able to see their families they are in these rat holes where they've got lights on 24 7 and subject to god knows what else those are two of our fellow canadian citizens so you layer that on top, you layer the trade war that they have against our country on top right now, and it's like now's the time when the UBCM and evidently some elected officials believe it's appropriate to roll out the red carpet and take money from the government of China to give them access to people who are supposed right. to be working for taxpayers. It just makes no sense to me. I think it's unethical. I think it's inappropriate, and I think it needs to stop. Okay, it's been going on for several years, and in addition to the uh, the reception that's put on, and usually at a fancy hotel downtown, the uh, China also pays for a sponsorship of the UBCM convention, and the amount of money of the sponsorship I discovered on the weekend is six thousand dollars this year. Six thousand dollars, not a lot of money. No, not a lot of money, but you know, it's a, a principle here, yeah. um, and I will say. $6,000 is not exactly chump change where, where I come from either. If someone offers yeah. you $6,000. I mean, I mean, re- I mean, relatively, right? Yeah, like, no, I, I, I get what you're saying. But, you know, more important is, is the principle. They yeah. shouldn't be taking any money. I don't care right. if it's $600. Right. Right. This is a, a foreign government that is engaged in a number of actions that are hostile to our Canadian interests. Think about it this way. At the provincial level, at the provincial level, 
provincial politicians are forbidden by law from taking foreign contributions or foreign money from individuals, from organizations, from companies. But at the municipal level, you can have a, a foreign government, again, engaged in behavior that is completely at odds with Canadian values, right. pay to get access to mayors and state councillors. I mean, what possible justification can can they have for that? It's they, just, this thing, it's, com- it's, it's uh, 6000 bucks for the sponsorship. Uh, I don't know how much it would cost to put on a... A wine and canapé reception at a fancy hotel. I don't know, ten thousand maybe. So I don't know. Maybe we're looking at sixteen thousand bucks for China a year. But it's been going on for seven years. So I don't know. Over the yeah. last seven years, maybe the UBCM has accepted seventy thousand dollars, eighty thousand dollars. I don't know. There could be a, a a big number over seven years in cash and hospitality from China. Would you Would you like to see them disclose that amount? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I, I don't see how they how they they can't. I mean, Mm -hmm. they're an organization that exists because municipalities pay them a membership fee. So taxpayers are paying for this. So the city of Port Coquitlam is a member of the UBCM. We pay our membership fee to the UBCM from our municipal tax dollars. Every single other municipality in the province does the exact same thing. So taxpayers are paying for the UBCM and they have every right to know how much money the UPCM is taking from a foreign government. I mean, okay. it's ridiculous that they are, but we at least deserve to know how much they're taking from them. Speaking to Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West, would, would you call it, I know you have called it this, a cash for access scheme, right? Is that what you think this is? It, it, it absolutely is, because that's what they're doing. They take a check from the government of China. In exchange right. for that check, the government of China gets a whole bunch of promotional uh, material with their name on it and stuff like that. But the big thing they get is they get access. The UBCM facilitates access to mayors and city councillors. When you go to the UBCM, they give you, uh, when you go to the UBCM convention, they give you an, a, a program booklet, a list of receptions. They encourage their members to go to the receptions. And so they're facilitating that access for the government of okay. China. So by its very definition, it's cash for access. Now okay. they want to kind of dress it up and call it different things. You know, uh, they're not fooling anyone. Everyone <laughs> understands what they're doing. And I think most people understand that this is wrong. Okay. It's a conflict. And it is, in my opinion, completely unethical, particularly given what's going on right now between our country and the government of China. All right. Speaking to Port Coquitlam, Mayor Brad West about the UBCM this year, take, once again, taking cash from uh, China for a sponsorship. Not all of your fellow mayors and councillors, of course, ag- agree with you on this. And earlier today, Pete Fry, who is a Vancouver city councillor who supports uh, this reception going on and, and maintaining these links with China took the other side of it. He took a little bit of a crack at you here. Let's have a listen. Uh, I, you know, I think that's just sort of populist rhetoric, to be honest with you. I mean, Mayor West has businesses in the city of Port Coquitlam that, that do a booming business with China. So it's a bit, and this contributes to his, you know, tax base, gives great, good paying jobs for Canadians living in Port Coquitlam. I mean, I think strong convictions are, are important to have. And I, and I think, you know, the mayor of Port Coquitlam has strong convictions and I appreciate them uh, in a general sense. I think this is a bit kind of pressing the populist, you know, Twitter button to garner 
a little bit more attention to this issue where if it matters that much to the mayor of Port Coquitlam, perhaps he should be taking another closer look at some of his tax base and, 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 and businesses that are doing business with China, if that's really where he wants to go with it. Brad West, what do you say to him? <laughs> well, I think it's such a, a sad statement of how low our politics have gone that expressing concern about the inappropriateness and the ethics of accepting cash from a foreign government that is trying to grow their influence and soft power is somehow dismissed as quote populist with you know like it is just nonsense i you know what about the best if that's the best they can come up with mike you know pretty sad but let me say this are there businesses in port coquitlam who probably do business with in china yeah absolutely and you know what they'll continue to be able to do so without me going to a government of China reception and drinking free wine and eating free appetizers. What, uh, what, I don't see the connection. Does well, I, I, I say that because he goes to this event and he drinks their free wine and he eats their free appetizers that somehow businesses in Vancouver all of a sudden get a bunch more business from China? Really? That's how it works? Well, I guess it's it's a question of maintaining positive relationships with, with the country as represented by the Consulate General in Vancouver. I mean, I, that's the argument for it, right? I mean, if you take a look at uh, trade relations between British Columbia and China, China is our second largest trading partner behind only the United States. $7 billion a year in exports, $11 billion a year in imports. I mean, it's huge, right? So sure. I, and, I guess... And- the pe- I guess the people, the people who support this are, are, would say it's in our interest to maintain relations with China. It's in our economic interest to do that. Well, of course we're going to have relations with them. And, yeah. you know, the last time I looked, international foreign relations was not the responsibility of the municipal level of government. Yeah. Maybe they should be more, uh, pay more attention to the condition of roads or parks or the cleanliness of cities or housing. Uh, you know, I just I don't think that that washes. We've got a provincial government and a federal government that have responsibility for those types of issues. And do we want to have a good relationship? Absolutely. But right now we don't have a good relationship. And it's because the other party has been engaged in a number of actions that are completely hostile to us. So this seems like okay. a very one sided relationship. And I think what I'm hearing from people is they want their elected representatives to actually stand up for Canadian interests. You know, let, let's not, when you're dealing with a bully, you usually have to stand up to them to get the behavior to change. Okay. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it a lot. Brad West, he's the mayor of Port Coquitlam. Do you, let's talk about provincial child protection officials now removing a newborn infant from their parents wow this is a story is being reported by aptn which is the aboriginal persons television uh, aboriginal people's television network uh reporting that 90 minutes after this uh, baby was delivered by c-section at the cam at a camloops hospital to an indigenous couple uh officials had removed the baby 90 minutes old this baby the uh, parents tried to fight to got the baby back, but then the baby has now been taken away. Let's uh, check in now and talk with Melissa Rigdon from the APTN Network who broke this story. Melissa, thank you for coming on. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay. When did this happen? 
So the baby was born on June 12th at the hospital in Kamloops, and 90 minutes later, uh, social services arrived saying that they neglected and they need to apprehend. So the baby's maternal grandmother was there at the time, kind of warded them off a little bit, got a meeting set up for two days later. Um, reportedly, the social workers, so this is on the 14th of June, uh, the social workers show up a co- two hours late for this meeting. The doctors had sedated the mother. So then the social workers say, oh, she doesn't even care enough to be awake for this. Oh. Look, she's asleep and sees the baby. So the mom wakes up. Um, she has no baby. Both of the parents are just obviously shell-shocked. How can you, ne- where would you get a report of neglect 90 minutes after your baby is born? Oh, okay, so they tried to take the baby when the baby was 90 minutes old and ended up ended up taking the baby when the baby was two days old. Yes, it seems okay. like it was, you know, it was set in motion. They they come in, and I've seen this. I've been covering, um, you know, we've been a journalist for 22 years. And uh, since December 2018, really started getting into these CFS files across the country. Because, I, you know, you look and say, there's so many kids in care. Um, uh, wow, it's, it's incredible to believe that there's so many crappy parents out there. But when you start peeling off the layers and really digging into it, what you learn is that there's an incredible amount of apprehensions that are happening for no reason, because this is CFS is really is, is an industry. They get kids. It's job security for them. Uh, you've got kids, and it's spinoff jobs, too. Right. You've got all the programming that they make parents take. So those, there's jobs there. Social workers all have jobs. Foster parents. It's a big, massive, multi-million dollar industry in every province in this wow. in this country, okay. it seems. And the number of apprehensions that are happening that are questionable, particularly right. involving low income people or First Nations people or immigrant families is pretty shocking okay cfs stands for child and family services right in british yeah, columbia yeah, yeah that's so kind of just generically as we refer to it across the country because of course it's got a different acronym depending on what province or territory right. you're in right so this is provincial government social workers t- uh, apprehended this baby correct so right. apparently there were a couple other agencies uh who had had been when somebody drew this uh matter to my attention there was other agencies that were identified as being kind of the offending agencies uh, and over the over the course of a couple of days, I had learned that these agencies did, in fact, not have anything okay. to do with this. It was Kamloops, um, the Children and Family uh, Development Ministry out of Kamloops, who did take it after other agencies had said, we don't believe that there's grounds to interfere here. We are not doing it. And Kamloops went, well, we will and did. Okay, why? What does the government say about this? I mean, you know, provincial social workers just don't come in and take a baby for no reason. I mean, there has to be well, some that's reason. That's what they want you to think. That's what they want you to think. Well, so what, are they, what, what are they saying? What is the reason? So they're saying they only will move in to take a child if there is evidence that the child is at high risk of death or or injury. Okay. And, so and they're saying they say, that this. Well, what is the evidence of high? Like, what is the evidence that there would be a high risk of death or injury to the child? Then they say, we won't comment. We just have, we believe that this child is high risk. What possibly happens within 90 minutes? I mean, this woman, the, the mother and, you know, the father there, they think nothing's, nothing's wrong here. Okay, we've got a, our firstborn child. So this isn't, it's not like they have a history with CFS that CFS could fall back on. This is their first child hmm. uh, for both of them. And within 90 minutes, what possibly could have happened for you to say, we need to seize this infant right now? Well, has there been violence in the home or something? I mean, there's got to be some reason. They, they wouldn't just come in and, and take a baby like that if, if they didn't have reasonable grounds. To... And that's what, that's what we as regular citizens like to hope is, is, the, is the case, right? Yeah, that you have right. to have strong grounds. Right. What I keep finding in, the, in covering these, 
Uh, and this is not the first CFS ap- questionable apprehension case that I found. I have one from Ontario. They seized five kids uh, because somebody phoned and said, this woman is a meth dealer. <laughs> and this woman is not a meth dealer. It was just somebody who was angry about where this woman was living. It was like a landlord's ex-wife. A six-month investigation later, no, she's not a, ne- a meth dealer. Here's $1,500 worth of gift cards and your five children back. Sorry about that. Like well, what about- These things are happening all over the place. Well, what can you tell me about the parents in this particular case? I mean, are these troubled parents? Are there, are there any addiction issues going or violence going on no, in the home or something? No, or? I mean, I've, I've talked to the, there, there's no evidence of that. What they see, what the, I just finished uh, just a few minutes before I got on the phone with you, just finished listening to a recording that the parents had made with um, some social workers. And one social worker says, medical staff felt that you weren't responding to the baby's cues. Like the mom slept through the crying baby. Well, I, oh. I've had a C-section. I mean, a single mom had a C-section. Uh, I oftentimes had to be woken up by, by nurses saying, Hey, baby needs to eat. And you know, you've got a, an immense amount of drugs in your system. It's not easy to get up and get moving. Um, yeah. And that's normal. That's a normal part of having a C-section, but it seems like, for whatever reason, that was a huge deal with these per- these parents in particular. Okay, I and noticed then it, you question, it. Then you question why. You know, is it, is it because they're Indigenous? Is it because they're easy pickings? Once you get this child into the system, what do they have to fight for to get her back or fight with, sorry, to get her back? They don't have the okay. money to go and get a high-powered lawyer. You know, this wouldn't, would this happen to a, an affluent or a middle-class non-Indigenous family who has the means to fight the system? And I increasingly am finding that I don't think that it would. And that's why you don't see a bunch of middle-class, non-Indigenous or non-immigrant children in the CFS system. Okay, I'm speaking to Melissa Rigdon from the Aboriginal People's Television Network. She broke this story about this this, uh, Indigenous infant being taken away uh, from the parents. Um, I I noted in your your story that you have on the APTN website that uh, some people were telling officials that the, the parents were homeless, but that that was not the case. They're not homeless. Correct. They're not homeless. And then the, the same social worker had indicated to the medical staff, oh, so they're not homeless. They live in a group home. And that also isn't true. They're just regular people with a two-bedroom apartment living life. Hmm. And okay. it, this is, I mean, this is what is really shocking, I think, and should, should disturb a lot of people, is that these, this apprehension happens without any of the grounds being proven. They can just come in and take your child, and they do. And they can make up whatever they want to say. Where? Oh, you know, you didn't wake up when your baby cried. Oh, you're homeless. Uh, and take your baby. And you have to then fight for weeks or months to prove that that was wrong in order to get your baby back. Well, you've already lost that valuable bonding time with your child. Yeah. And I mean, imagine how shell-shocked these parents are. They just don't even know where ended up at this point. Like, oh, we yeah. just had a baby and we're so happy. And now we're, our whole world has been turned upside down. Where, where is the baby now? Williams Lake. In, in a like, in a foster home, okay. Correct. And, and this is the other thing. So the Ministry of, of Children and Family Development says we make every effort to put the baby, if we, you know, if we are going to investigate, if a family, if a home is safe, we make every effort to put the child with family, immediate family or extended family while we do that investigation. Complete lie, because they did not do that. There's, uh, I've talked to the immediate family and extended family, all of whom would be more than happy to say, we'll, we'll keep baby H while you guys sort through this. And it's not. This yeah. child is in a non-Indigenous foster home. So that's one, I a guess, right line to say I guess one of the, that. One of the difficulties I always find with this story and a, and a, and a story like this, and I, I'm sure you do too as a journalist, is that 
you, you only get one side of it, right? I mean, it's like the government has said, we had to take this child to protect this child, which you can understand. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously there has to be powers of any government to be able to step in and, and protect a vulnerable uh, infant or child. Sure. But, yeah. you know, if, but you always have this situation where the government is saying, for privacy reasons, we're not yeah, going to exactly. tell you why we did it. And they, they pretend that they have surrounding CFS are built in structures to protect the families involved, the children involved. And what I found over the course of my career as a journalist, that these privacy laws, it's not the parents who are asking for privacy. It's the agencies that are using it as a shield to protect them from intruder eyes coming in to see how this industry functions. Okay, where does this, just last question for you, where does this go from here now? I mean, obviously these parents want their, want their baby back. Uh, what happens now? So they now have a, an assortment of hoops that they're going to have to jump. They've got meetings this week with uh, the agency that has their, their, their baby. Um, the, the recording that I listened to just before talking to you, the social worker had indicated that there's, they're going to set up a, a massive plan with several steps in it for them to prove that they're capable of having a child return to them. So then you have to ask yourself, well, how long does this take? This is valuable time as a newborn that this infant is not bonding with its parents. And so when it is, when the baby is returned, when she is returned, where do you go from there? I mean, this, this, an integral portion of her, of her development, her first development has been interrupted by this. And for what? Okay. 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 Well, we continue to uh, follow that. I look forward to any updates on this story. Thank you for coming on and, t- and telling us about it today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Okay. I appreciate it. That is Melissa Rigdan, uh, Ridgan, host of APTN in focus. That's the Aboriginal People's Television Network. She broke this story about this uh, infant being taken away from their parents. Let's get an update on the fire situation. Cooler weather helping crews do battle with a wildfire in the woods between Horseshoe Bay and Lions Bay. Let's get the latest now from Donna McPherson, fire information officer at the Coastal Fire Center. Donna, thanks for coming on. No problem. Okay, what's the latest on that Horseshoe Bay fire there? Well, we've got crews back working on the fire uh, right now. We've got 29, 29 crew people and uh, three helicopters working on it today. We had three crew people uh, stay on the fire overnight, and there's no growth overnight. And the fire is very quiet this morning. Uh, you had mentioned the cooler temperatures and the higher relative humidities, and that's basically brought the fire down to not much more than smoking ground at this point. Um, and we're also anticipating that we might be getting a little bit of precipitation in that area in the next few days. Well, that would be very welcome. Any idea how this fire started? We're, uh, we've got the fire under investigation at this point, so I really can't tell you a definitive uh, reason. Uh, we have uh, the fire burning in a very uh, steep area. It's very cliffy, and uh, that's one of the things that's causing difficulty for our crews as they're working in the fire. Um, as you can understand, they uh, have to dig down to mineral soil to, uh, to get the fire out, and that dislodges rocks. And, so, of course, obviously, if they cut down trees, the same thing. So that causes wow. a lot of rolling debris for the crews. Okay, a big shout out to those firefighters. I mean, they do they do awesome work, and this is very difficult and demanding, and, and sometimes dangerous work as well. As, as you mentioned, Donna, like, w- how do they fight a fire like that if if you've got like elevations like that on a cliffside or a mountainside or something? It's incredibly slow, methodical work. They're working up uh, the the sides of the fire right now. We can't put people above the fire until we're pretty sure that it's not going to move uphill. So they work up the side. They're digging down, as I mentioned, to mineral 
soil, so they want to get down to the sand and gravel. Everything that's there that's burnable is taken out, and then they wet down any uh, hot spots that they find. Um, most of what's burnt so far has been the undergrowth. Uh, we didn't have any trees burning as such. It's just the stuff that's underneath, but it's a phenomenally steep area with a very, very thick canopy of very big trees, so it's, uh, it's just going to be slow. Okay, any homes threatened in that area? No, no structures were at risk from this fire at all. Uh, yesterday, any movement on the fire was uphill, uh, away from the highway, and the closest structures are downhill and across the highway, so they weren't under threat. Okay, and speaking of Donna McPherson, Fire Information Officer at the Coastal Fire Centre, that's the latest on the Horseshoe Bay fire. Uh, some good news there as firefighters work to get, get control of that particular fire. Donna, what's the situation like in the rest of the province right now? Well, right now, uh, weirdly enough, the coast is the hottest and driest spot uh, in the province. A lot of the province did uh, pick up precipitation. Uh, we're just waiting for the rain to hit the rain gauges so that we can see those numbers go down. Right now, we've got uh, high uh, with pockets of extreme fire danger rating. And it's a good, really good time to remind people about uh, if they're out in the forest to be careful. We're, we were looking at the possibility of uh, putting a campfire ban in place uh, this week, but we're going to hold off until next week after the long weekend because of the rain that's in the forecast. But we are reminding anybody that uh, is having a campfire that to us a campfire is small. It's a half a meter by a half a meter, so that's not much bigger than a small cooler. And they have to put it out when they leave. Um, we're not talking about pallet fires or bonfires or party fires. We're just talking about a very small, efficient campfire used for people that are camping. Yeah, like a party fire like that, like a bush party, like people burning pallets or something. That's that's illegal, right? You can't, right. you're not allowed and to, yeah. Exactly right. At this point, we would call that a Category 2 fire because it's much bigger than wow. a campfire, and that's illegal. Right. Are there any parts of the province where there's a campfire ban in place? Uh, to be honest with you, I'm not certain. I haven't reached out yeah. to my colleagues around the province uh, today. Okay, yeah, you're just responsible for the coast, right? That's right. Yeah, okay, so there's no campfire ban in place right now in the coastal region. Well, there could be local government that has uh, campfire prohibitions in place that are different from ours. So if they're going to a municipal park, it's a really good idea to check with uh, local government first. Okay, and what's the weather forecast looking like right now? Right now, uh, we're enjoying a cooler and slightly damper condition, and uh, our forecaster is saying that we should be getting uh, scattered showers uh, throughout Monday to maybe Friday, and by the end of Friday, he figures that the rain uh, would have hit most areas on the coast. Thanks for the great work you guys do. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. I appreciate it. Donna McPherson, Fire Information Officer, Coastal Fire Center. You heard. Let's bring you an update on a story we talked about on an earlier show. It's been called now The Day the Music Burned. June 1st, 2008. Now, some people might remember this. There was a fire that occurred across the back lot of Universal Studios Hollywood on that day. And one of the things that burned up in that fire was a famous movie set. It was uh, the Courthouse Square uh, featured in the film Back to the Future. So that was one of the headlines at that time that that set had burned up. Universal Studios that day also disclosed that 
some TV and video footage was also burned in that fire. But they also said there was no, no TV or video footage burned, that they didn't have a backup of it. They had backup copies of the TV and video. So it didn't sound like it was too bad. Now, though, we're learning about just what was lost in this fire. And this is an extraordinary story in the New York Times on, on June 11th this year. And that was the headline, The Day the Music Burned, revealing through court records and, and, other, and other evidence that a lot of master recordings of music was burned in this fire, including uh, modern artists like Elton John, Nine Inch Nails, Nirvana, Snoop Dogg, Joni Mitchell on the list. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Even more disturbing, from my point of view, are the master recordings of some of the great jazz artists in America, Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington. Bing Crosby, Ella Fitzgerald. You know, these are master recordings. Now there's there's copies of these recordings on records, but we're talking the master tapes, the original best quality recordings potentially lost in this fire. Now let's bring you an update now with some of the artists involved filing a class action lawsuit over this. David Friend is the fine entertainment reporter for the Canadian Press News Agency. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hiya, David. Hi. Thanks again for coming on. What's the latest on this now? So I've, I've spoken to a few uh, Canadian artists and producers who so far haven't gone on the record, but from what I'm gathering, there's a lot of confusion right now. A lot of musicians, have, for example, I spoke to a producer last week who he didn't want to go on the record yet, but uh, I called him in the studio and he said to me, look, I know some of my stuff was in there. I don't know how much. I don't know what. And I'm in the middle of a recording session right now with these other guys who are just throwing their hands up in the air because they know I'm talking to you about the universal fire. That's all we're talking about right now. And we have no answers. So that's where we kind of stand right now. Um, you've seen some of the U.S. artists uh, sort of band together for this class action lawsuit. But it seems like not everyone's going to approach it that way. Um, some artists might go solo with their own lawsuits. Um, there have been some questions of whether... Some artists might just not bother at all because it may ruffle the feathers at one of or the largest record label in the world. Um, it's a bit of a mess right now, and I think everyone's just trying to figure out how they want to go forward. Yeah, it really is uh, confusing for sure. Now, you've got a group of lawyers now who have banded together with uh, some of these artists who have launched this class action, like you said, David. So I'm, I'm looking down the list of the artists here on this class action lawsuit. Uh, Soundgarden, um, to the estate of Tupac Shakur. The the late ex-wife of Tom Petty, uh, or the ex-wife of the late Tom Petty, and, and some others. So in this class action lawsuit, what are they seeking? They are, they're seeking some sort of compensation. Now, when Universal, ha when the fire occurred, Universal had insurance payouts um, that were basically pocketed by the corporation. And um, so some of the artists are saying, well, some of this money should be going to us because what was in those vaults would be... Uh, you know, revenue generating theoretically in the future. So that yeah. seems to be where a lot of them are positioning themselves at this point. Okay, it's confusing because what is Universal saying? Because they've now put out a, a statement at one point disputing some of the New York Times uh, reporting on this, right? 
Yeah, they they were very careful around the wording that they used when they were disputing it. They didn't yeah. say it was fully inaccurate or anything like that. I think they said there were some inaccuracies. I, I believe that's the wording they used. But they've been very careful not to say anything that could come back in court, I, th- I believe. Yeah, but Universal Studios, I don't know, they they don't seem to have been upfront with the public about precisely what was lost here. I mean, if you go back all those years when the fire happened, I mean, all the way back to 2008, we certainly weren't he- hearing at that time about all these master recordings being burned up. I mean, we're only no. finding out about so so much time has passed. Well, the other thing, too, is that what was inside the, the facility apparently wasn't very well cataloged. So it could also be that Universal didn't know what they lost. And so it's taken them years to figure it out. Obviously, they haven't been very forward with it. But... Um, I've talked to an artist earlier this week, a Canadian who hasn't, he's not entirely certain that his work is in there. And he said to me, uh, I believe that the record label that I used to work at, it was acquired by Universal in one of their many acquisitions over the years. So my masters could be in there, but I don't actually know. So I've called my lawyer, but he's on vacation. So now I'm just waiting to see if my stuff burned. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, when you take a look down the list of these artists, too, I mean, the artists that are in the New York Times story, they're talking thousands and thousands of master tapes potentially burned in this fire. And you're talking sort of like the the, the royalty of, um, of American pop music, you know? I mean, it just goes down mm-hmm. the list of, like, some of the names we've already mentioned, but there's, like, Ray Charles, Chuck Berry, Elton John, The Police, Nirvana. I mean, it just... It just goes on and on, and to think that these master recordings have been lost in this fire is very troubling. What what is the uh, by the way, David? What is the importance of a master a tape recording? Why is it important to preserve that? Because a lot of this stuff would have been pressed onto record, so there's copies of it, right? Right. Well, what the New York Times article did very well, I think, was pointing out that the technology for recording is actually far more advanced than playback technology. So what they capture, and when you think about all the, you know, the complex mics and everything else that's sort of layered in a studio, um, what they capture is, is far more layered and, and elaborate than the speakers that you have in your house. So the master recording, aside from, you know, maybe having songs that haven't been released yet or never were and may come up in a box in the future, they also have a quality recording that, you know, 20, 30 years down the road could unveil something that was buried in the, in the previous mixes. So it's, it's the, it's, you know, stage one of, of the recording in, in all senses of the word. Right. And it's important to preserve that because it's the best quality. Yeah, and right. I think that's sort of been downplayed. A lot of people that I've spoken with have said, well, you know, so what? There's digital copies. But yeah. digital copies are, if, if anything, they're even more uh, easy to lose than physical copies. So it, uh, there's there's a real conversation here, I think, that people in the public need to understand, and also the music industry especially, about preservation, how it's being done, who's responsible for it, and also how capitalist uh, companies um, maintain the history that they created once. For yeah. the you know for the generations to come, is there any evidence that uh, there may have been recordings lost in this fire that were unique recordings that were there were no copies made? It was never issued to the public on a record, for example, and maybe maybe some of that has been lost forever if it was never if there were no backups made. Well, because they're the the masters, they are actually recordings of the sessions often. So there yeah. would be songs on there that I mean, the, this isn't the first instance where uh, a, a facility has burned. Uh, there was one in New York many years ago um, that that caught fire, and I believe a bunch of Aretha Franklin recordings were lost. Um, so th- 
that it's it's just that there's so many things that can be on these tapes that we don't even know about yet or we'll right. probably never know because often box sets come about when someone's going through the library and they stumble across this recording that no one knew existed and then all of a sudden it's on a release right. there's a lot of surprises in music history that you just kind of find oh yeah oh yeah and it is very troubling to think that 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 could that, that could be lost now um, i think that's what's that's what's uh, what a lot of people are trying to wrap their heads around now is that we know this is tragic. We know we've lost a lot, but there's no way to quantify necessarily. And, and yeah. the courts will in some way probably try to quantify it, but there's no way to really know what we lost. There's just this feeling of something missing now that we thought we would always have. Last question for you, David. I mean, the, the class action lawsuit that's been launched by some of these affected artists also says that uh, United Music uh, maybe didn't were did not adequately store these master tape recordings that the the works were stored in inadequate sub substandard storage facilities and i think maybe that's maybe one of the the other important elements of this is are we sure that the the master recordings that exist now in the in the united states of of important historical artists and in, in our own country in canada are they being adequately preserved and protected it's a great question. It's, it's something I've been looking into in relation to Canada. Um, it's uh, not something you'd usually get an answer to, but in the States, it's been a conversation for a while. The Library of Congress obviously has a better role in this. Um, it, it comes down to that question of what does a for-profit company want to do with something once it's no longer profitable? And often uh, when it comes down to you know the, the bottom line, they want to junk it or find a way to cut costs that may endanger history. It's, it's, it's something that I don't think that we've fully come to terms with yet, but I think we need to talk about it. Okay, you continue to do a great job in that story. Thank you for coming on. Thanks a lot. Take care. I appreciate it. That's David Friend. He is the entertainment reporter uh, for the Canadian Press. We'll go back to our top story on the show today, and that's should the Union of BC Municipalities take cash and hospitality from the People's Republic of China? I wrote about this in the province newspaper for my column on Sunday, which you can still check out online, theprovince.com. This got rolling when Brad West, the outspoken young mayor of uh, Port Coquitlam uh, raising the alarm on this saying he thinks this is unethical to take money from China to allow a reception for mayors and councillors from across British Columbia uh, municipalities to, as they gather in, in this September. He wrote a blistering two-page letter uh, to the president of the UBCM demanding this whole thing be scrapped and give the money back to China. You can read that letter online, by the way, if you check out my column on that at theprovince.com. I spoke to Brad West earlier on the show. He told me that uh, he thinks this is cash for access to local politicians. Here's what he said. Well, I just think it's completely unethical and inappropriate. I mean, first off, mayors and city councillors are elected to represent their residents and work on local municipal issues. What, what business could they possibly have sucking back free wine and appetizers with the government of China? Uh, it, it's not our role. The other piece of it is this. It's only the government of China who this courtesy is extended to. The government of China has a well-documented campaign to expand their influence and grow their soft power. You layer on top of that the fact that this is a country that is engaged in so many hostile actions that are against the interests of Canadians. They have two Canadian citizens rotting in a prison right now. So you layer that on top, you layer the trade war that they have against our country on top right now, and it's like, now's the time 
when the UBCM and evidently some elected officials believe it's appropriate to roll out the red carpet. Okay, as Brad West speaking earlier on the show, let's get another take on this now. I'm joined by Coquitlam Mayor Richard Stewart. Mayor Stewart, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank okay, you. you've heard, you've heard what your colleague Brad West has to say. What do you think about this reception by the UBCM? Well, it's really a no-win for for the executive of UBCM. They are uh, essentially they represent municipalities across the province. And when uh, the current policy, of course, is if the pipeline organization or the petroleum producers organization or the government of Alberta or the government of the United the United States Consul General um, um, wants to engage with uh, the delegates at a conference that are willing to, um, they come forward and there is no set policy, I gather, from UBCM that says where we draw the line. And, and you know, if the Palestinian or Israeli or name the dispute around the world, then there's going to be some yeah. people against it and some people for it. So it's really a, a, a challenge. And, of course, the delegates at UBCM, we have a, a number of different events and, and meetings that we are invited to. We pick the ones we want to engage with. Um, if we don't want to engage with the Petroleum Pipeline Organization, we don't go to that one. So it's a I, I understand where he's coming from. It's yeah. just that you know the, the executive of UBCM are really in a tough position because the UBCM membership ought to be making that decision themselves rather than have the uh, essentially okay. the access to the delegates fettered by uh, decisions of the executive. So. This is a reception uh, by the government of China that's gone on for several years at the UBCM. Have you attended it in the past, and do you plan I, to go this year? I believe I've attended it once. Um, I didn't intend to go to do it to it this year. There's usually um, other uh, things that I find more valuable or more uh, important that I attend uh, that conflict with it. I remember one year I did go to it, and I, I I wasn't particularly impressed with the level of engagement. But that was years before the current, um, I think, crisis in inter- intergovernment relations between Canada and and China. Do you think the UBCM should cancel this reception given the current relations? between Canada and China, which are pretty bad right now. Well, I get that, but uh, I don't think the, the executive of UBCM can. They don't have a policy where, whereby they can speak for the membership and say, no, the members aren't allowed to be uh, at an event that's sponsored by government of China or any other government. Uh, if uh, uh, Mayor West wants to put a resolution on the floor of the of the assembly, I think that might be an appropriate mechanism where we we figure out how we de- how we decide um, where to draw the line. Um, right now, I don't think there are limits, and I think that um, and if you did, then PETA would want to be there to advocate against animal. Um, husbandry, for that matter, uh, um, there'll be yeah. vegan organizations and and cattle cattle producer organizations, and and now you got to draw the line somewhere. That you have to say either we accept anyone that wants to sponsor an event at UBCM, or else we we say this is this well, is the limit. And well, what do you what do you say? Where do you draw the line? I mean, maybe the line should be drawn at this uh, at the People's Republic of China, which is uh, holding two Canadian citizens effectively hostage right now, and they're uh, they've got trade dispute with us and have banned some of our products coming in there, and there's lots of other problems too. Where do you draw your, the line yourself? 
Well, I've actually met with the Chinese Consul General, and I've voiced our dis- displeasure at this particular thing. Sometimes silence or ignoring them isn't the appropriate approach. I don't know. I won't be attending this one, um, but and I suspect that a whole bunch of the delegates won't be attending it, and that may well be the, the strongest message we can send to the government of China. You can go ahead and sponsor an event if you want, but we're, we're not interested unless China is, is managing its human rights issues a little bit more um, uh, appropriately from the perspective of Canada. Uh, but it, it is really difficult to ask UBCM to say, you step in and you be the arbiter of all things good across the world and make sure that any agency that we can all agree on doesn't show up because I don't think there's any agency that we'd all agree on. Okay, last question for you. We just got a minute left here. Doesn't it look bad, though? I mean, you've got a, a government of China has been well documented in books like Claws of the Panda by Jonathan Manthorpe, a recent, a terrific, recently published book about the campaign of influence by, by the government of China inside of Canada. And he says one of the tactics that China uses is to try to exert influence over locally elected uh, politicians. Given that, doesn't it look bad for the UBCM to say we're going to have a reception with them and take six thousand dollars from them. It might it might look even worse though if we d- decided to kind of ad hoc. Uh, if the executive of UBCM that doesn't have a mandate to do this excited, decided ad hoc that the the membership doesn't get to make that decision on their own because it never has done that before. So I'm I'm kind of standing up here and saying there's a process for this and maybe that yeah. process ought to be asked to work properly because the membership can make those decisions at the at the floor of the assembly and we ought to. Thanks for coming on. No, I appreciate it. I appreciate it, too. It's uh, Richard Stewart. He is the mayor of Coquitlam. Saw a headline flash across my computer screen the other day. Money laundering charges laid against officials with a Vancouver company. And I thought, wow, finally, finally, we're going to get some money laundering charges here. Remember, we had that earlier money laundering case fall apart. I thought, boy, now we're going to see some action here on money laundering. Turns out. Uh, the charges are laid by the uh, U.S. officials. So four executives with a Vancouver payment processing company called PacNet uh, been charged uh, with uh, money laundering among the charges, also a conspiracy to commit mail and wire fraud as well against officials with this company in Vancouver. The charges laid by American, uh, the U.S. Department of Justice, so the question is, why can't we lay charges here and get uh, convictions here in our own country on our side of the border? Let's check in with Dr. Peter German now, former RCMP deputy commissioner. He's the author of those dirty money reports that rocked British Columbia in the last few months. Hi, thanks for coming on. Hi, Mike. Pleasure to be here. I appreciate it a lot. Now, in our country, everyone's uh, innocent until proven guilty, so there's been nothing proven in court with this PacNet company, but I don't know. Does that surprise you to see U.S. officials laying money charges here with the company in, in Vancouver? Well, certainly they're uh, innocent until proven guilty down there as well. Right. Um, am I surprised that there's charges laid in the United States uh, where no charges are laid in Canada? Not really. Why is that? Uh, well, the, a couple of things. Um, you know, talking generically and not about this particular case, but uh, we often have found that, for whatever reason, uh, Canada is unable to prosecute these cases. And uh, and if there is a parallel investigation in the United States, we see U.S. prosecutors going ahead. And there are reasons for that, which is exactly why we touched on it in one of the uh, dirty money reports. 
Yeah, I mean, when you think back to one of the things that I think really sounded the alarm bells on this money laundering file in British Columbia was the collapse of that e-pirate investigation, and there were charges uh, against a Richmond company called Silver International. This was an RCMP investigation that went on for years, and this was regarded as the big one, right? We were finally going to have a major money laundering case put in front of a, a, a the court system here and it all fell apart and unraveled and the and that was the case was stayed what did you think when you when you heard about that the the uh, silver international case falling apart what went through your mind uh disappointment and that yeah. occurred during the course of uh the reviews i think during that occurred during the time i was in the involved in the second review so i'd already done the casino review for the attorney general and was working on the, the second one when we heard about the silver charges you know um the attorney general asked that i take a look at the PACnet and another case as a kind of case studies um, so i wasn't looking at really uh were these individuals responsible? Was there guilt? Uh, that, that's not my role at all. It was really right. one of process, and it was to determine, you know, here is an organization, PACnet, that was designated by the U.S. president and uh, as a significant criminal organization. Um, it is no longer uh, so designated, but it was uh, for a time. Uh, how is it possible that that occurs in the United States and yet, you know, it's essentially a Canadian company, Canadian principles, and we don't have an investigation here or there are no charges here. Right. And so that was really the reason uh, that I looked into the case is that process issue and what do the Americans have that we don't have. Um, and, and I can comment on that. Sure. What are the differences between us and the states on this? Yeah, so in Canada, uh, there was a discussion. I, d- I describe it in uh, the second report. Uh, among uh, with RCMP and various U.S. agencies uh, with the idea, will the RCMP take this case on? And for a number of reasons, the RCMP declined to take it on. And in fact, they referred it to the Vancouver police. And the detective from the Vancouver police did investigate it and then referred it, as I understand it, to Provincial Crown. The Provincial Crown Council chose not to uh, go ahead, give charge approval. So you, usually that happens for one of two reasons. It's either that there's insufficient evidence to support uh, a, a charge in this country, or um, we just don't have a charge that covers the behavior. And in the United States, uh, they have, and you referred to it as a mail and wire fraud. And that's yeah. what these individuals were charged with, as well as money laundering. We don't actually even have those offenses in Canada. Wow. Um, those are very specific offenses. Now, you can say that our fraud charges, you know, incorporate that, but in the United States, it's very clear. And a lot of uh, people run up against those mail and wire fraud charges, particularly when you deal with direct mail schemes. So, um, you know, one, was there enough evidence in the first place to support charges? And number two, do we actually have charges that cover that type of behavior? Okay, speaking to to Peter German, the author of the Dirty Money Reports here in in British Columbia, I, I imagine that when we have a public inquiry into money laundering in British Columbia, uh, a lot of this will be reviewed by that public inquiry. In your mind, do you think we need do we need tougher laws in British Columbia uh, on money laundering? Yeah, so it's yeah. The the interesting thing is we really can't blame any one agency or government because in Canada, with our federal system, a lot has to be done by the federal government, and then some things have to be done by the provincial government. So it's this divided responsibility. So criminal code amendments are something that we talked about. That's a federal responsibility. Um, Providing money for police is both a federal and a provincial. Um, And and there are a whole lot of different moving parts. 
at the end of the day, um, the American investigative process and prosecutorial process uh, seems to work a lot more efficiently in terms of white collar crime. And although there, you know, there there may be a lot of things about the American uh, criminal justice system that we don't like, particularly you know some really tough sentencing. Uh, on the other hand, um, they do seem to get to the goal line uh, more efficiently than we do in terms of white collar crime. Yeah, yeah, they certainly do seem to be more efficient in, in, in that regard, for sure. We just got one minute left here, Peter. Do you, do you detect in your career as a police officer and working with, with Crown prosecutors and that kind of thing, is there frustration among prosec- the prosecution service in our country and in our province and among police officers that maybe we need some better, better laws to, to, get, uh, to get charges and get them to stick? Yeah, well, so uh, clearly um, there is a frustration level. And yeah. actually, when looking at the PACNET file, and I do uh, outline it in the report, um, there was a certain frustration within the RCMP, the investigative level, that they couldn't take on this this investigation, uh, that, you know, the decision was made not to. Um, but more generally, yes, you do uh, find that white-collar crime investigators are frustrated by a number of factors and so are prosecutors and of course prosecutors can only prosecute cases that are brought to them so if the police aren't investigating these cases aren't bringing them to the crown for charge approval there's nothing for the crown to work with so again it's hard to point a finger at any one aspect of the criminal justice system we just have to work a lot more efficiently and have more uh, systems in place and and laws to make it work thanks for coming on you're most welcome, Mike. All the best. Uh, I appreciate it. That's Peter German, former RCMP deputy commissioner, is the author of those dirty money reports that really blew the lid off of uh, some of the money laundering concerns in our province. Of course, we got a public inquiry into money laundering coming up now, and maybe that will get to the bottom of uh, some of these uh, cases as well.